As a former regulator, I think it's a very bad position to be on the defensive all the time. And that's kind of what I see Web3 not kind of getting out of is the defensive posture. And we need to, as a space, move towards being more proactive in explaining and showing how what we're doing is good for the world. Like literally, what is the public good? Until we start to tell that story more often and louder, I, I don't, I, I'm actually really worried. All right, welcome to another episode of Built on Web 3. Our guest on the show today is Shannon Wells, the head of ecosystem growth at Web 3 video infrastructure company LivePeer. Shannon, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. I almost said happy Monday because I had a, a, a line in there from an interview we did on Monday, but it is Wednesday that we found out earlier today, Thomas. Yeah, <laughs> feels, like Monday. Monday. <laughs> feels like a Monday. Feels like a Monday. So we uh, we start off every interview just kind of talking about Web3 in general and how you think about Web3. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, so Shannon, what is Web3 to you? Mm, I have been in what could be considered Web3 for actually over 10 years now. Um, my first job out of university was as a financial sector regulator in Canada's finance department, where um, I, with colleagues at the Bank of Canada was looking at Bitcoin as a financial crime. So I've come <laughs> a long way <laughs> in what I think Web3 is, what its virtues and vices are. Um, after- so the government paid you to say, to tell, uh, to tell them why Bitcoin is a crime and you got so and into I, it that you I said, I'm out of here. I love it. <laughs> I, I was drinking the Kool-Aid. I thought it was evil. I was like, this is a baby killing machine. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and then yeah, left, left the government to do more like centralized policy stuff at the World Economic Forum. I was there for um, almost four years through their Global Leadership Fellows Program um, and as head of Community for North America, actually. So the World Economic Forum mission is improving the state of the world through public-private collaboration, and it does that by bringing together the most rarefied senior leaders from business government and civil society organizations. So this was like back in I'm dating myself. I was like 2015 um, and was working with CEOs who were looking at blockchain is like really cool. So then for a while I was in like, <laughs> so phase one, like crypto's killing babies. Phase two, blockchain is cool, but crypto's evil. <laughs> and <laughs> then um, in like 2017, I'm, I met Jeremy Allaire, like, from Circle in like 2016. And I was like, oh, this is actually interesting. And then like started looking at stable coins. And then I started advising a few stable coin projects because from a like monetary systems perspective, it made a lot of sense for like fragile economies, why you would want to use um, crypto backed stable currencies. And then I started going down the rabbit hole. I learned about proof of stake. Um, I started dating a guy who was like running nodes um, for different blockchains. And my background's actually like in political science. And um, my undergraduate was in 
federal systems and understanding why you would want to have um, united and divided sovereignty over things. So like when I learned that like crypto bros had come to a realization that human coordination to upgrade technology was important <laughs> through proof of stake protocol design. I was like, I'm in. Um, and then, yeah, I just kind of, I mean, I was doing other stuff around then. I was also head of impact investing at um, Canada's largest startup accelerator called Mars, Dis Dis Mars Discovery District um, in Toronto. So I've always been like super interested in just like how at a human coordination level, we pool resources and decide to do things together. Um, and that's kind of like, for me, what web three is actually about is if I look at like what I've done in my career, like started off like super centralized, like the idea that it was nation states or, you know, CEOs of, you know, monolithic global corporations who had the resources wherewithal, you know, legitimacy to make global change, like crypto, you know, not just from an, like the economic incentives that you get through, like, yeah, crypto tokens, but like the community aspect and the belief that we can through unique areas of contribution, whether that's like a, you know, decomposed technology stack where we're all like one bit of, a, and I'm happy to talk about like where live peer fits into the web three tech stack, mm -hmm. but like the cultural element of web three where, yeah, we, we are a decentralized community. Like we're a decentralized community of technology users. Um, and that's like, that's what it's about for me. Yeah. So for, for listeners that might not understand why web three is so powerful for human coordination, can you kind of explain why that, like, why does web three empower this ability that we didn't have before? Hmm. I think it's because even the smallest amount of effort can have a big impact when you pull that and like fractional ownership. Um, again, this was like the first like primitive of like what the coordination power of, you know, web three is, was about was like fractional ownership in, um, in an asset. And, I think that through like DAO governance structures and, you know, those like next gen tokens, whether that's a social token or an NFT or like new, you know, on-chain verifiable or like verifiable credentials, um, the idea that like you can recognize and acknowledge like even a small contribution to a bigger project, I think that's like what's powerful. Yeah. And it's such a hard thing to conceptualize and like see if you're not in it. Right. Cause like once you're in a discord because you have an NFT and you receive a credential cause you do something, it's like really hard to understand what it is until you actually do it. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, when I started going down the rabbit hole, I would like spend a lot of different time in discord communities. And it's like, you do have to find that affinity that makes you want to like use crypto. I think it's, you know, the stickiness is not like just coming to like make a quick bucket is like finding your people. Yeah. There's, there's too much, 
you know, speculation in Web3 and NFTs. And it's nice that we're starting to get away from that. We, we've been having a lot of conversations about how, like, yeah. what, like what people think 2023 is going to be. And a lot of people are saying, like, well, I hope the speculation goes away. <laughs> yeah. And I guess this gets to, like, where I'm at in my Web3 journey and what Web3 means to me from Live Peers' perspective. And when I give talks, I my first slide is, like, Web3 is about utility. It's not about speculation. And, you know, what's also cool about what LivePeer is doing and what I think the Web3 technology stack is doing is we are decentralizing and creating competitive markets for, like, the things that make it possible to use the Internet. So, like, Web2, like, you know, let's talk about the difference between Web2 and Web3. Like, in... So, and web one, we can like go back to web one, like web one was about like open protocols, open standards, like anyone could, you know, now access this new way of connecting digitally. And then web two was about a business model, um, where, yeah, you, it was like digital business. Like the Um, original startup. Yeah. The original startup. Um, how do you create a business on the internet? Like that's what web two was about. And as it turns out, like using the internet, um, is a very expensive enterprise. Like the actual like utilities that make using the internet possible, like data storage, you know, video transcoding, like broadcasting video on the internet, it's super expensive. And, you know, one of the reasons why Web 2 is bad and what we're trying to fix in Web 3 is like, the internet monopolies like Facebook, you know, Google, like why they have such a high take rate on creator revenue, like why YouTube takes like 75 or 80 cents on every dollar that a creator makes is not just because it's like, it's not only because it's trying to maximize profit, it's also trying to cover its infrastructure costs. So like Twitch, you know, YouTube had to sell to Google in 2008 because it like couldn't cover its costs. Twitch continues to sell at a Continue, continues to generate a loss for Amazon because it can't cover its infrastructure costs. And so when you leverage decentralized compute networks through, um, you know, blockchain networks, that cost comes down like 10x. So, you know, LivePeer, if you're using LivePeer's decentralized network to do video transcoding, which is what you need to do to put video on the internet, and I can talk about like what that means. Um, it's ten times cheaper. And so, like as a business, like working on a, on top of Web three, like your cost structure is just fundamentally different. You don't have to take as much greater revenue. And then when you like pair that stack, that decentralized tech stack, with other Web three primitives that allow users to own and port their own data, um, that's when you get like new potential for like I think infinite creative economic potential. So when you talk about, so, so this is really cool because we're talking about a, a pretty practical use case for Web3 here in terms mm-hmm. of decreasing the cost to almost like have business on the internets uh, today, right? Yeah, totally. The cost of operating a business on the internet is, you know, by orders of magnitude lower at least in theory, but like we're working to get there really soon with like, you know, again, other decentralized compute primitives 
um, like storage, you know, file sharing, broadcasting, content delivery, like all of these things that are compute intensive, like what, like how life here started was the realization that like, what is, (laughs) like what actually is mining like blockchain and Ethereum it's like nodes that have a lot of excess like compute capacity. So like if you're running a blockchain node, you probably had idle GPU capacity. And guess what? Like GPU cards are like what you need to do a whole host of like computational things, like rendering, transcoding, like machine learning, like all of those really critical compute things that have like really practical use cases like are on these rigs that are all over the world and why not also tap into those can you kind of explain why so so live peer in general is decentralized video correct can you kind of explain like the the specifics of how it is 10 times cheaper to build this on web 3 versus web 2 like I'm trying to figure out, like, okay, I, I get it, but like, why is it ten times cheaper? It's awesome that it is, but why? <laughs> so in Web two, like, the, it's the amount of compu- it's like the computational intensity of like the data on the information on the web, right? Like, so think of like server farms, and like that's the the only people who've been able to provide computational resources at a scale that's needed for the world to use the internet the way it uses the internet today are these monopolies who have like large server farms all over the world. So, and they own that, like, you know, who owns those server farms and who like gets the rewards of those server farms. It's like Jeff Bezos and, you know, a few people, but like, you know, if you, if you literally just like, blew up those servers and like the computational dust like fell all over the world. Like everyone running a node, like that's what we do is like those centralized server farms become like individual nodes in a global compute network. And so, you know, exactly like the, the engineering behind exactly why that's cheaper. We'll have to get like the head of like engineering at live anymore, (laughs) like depth, um, on that, but, um, the decentral, yeah, the decentralization of compute and the fact that like, what, what are the resources required for me to run a node from my basement? And we have like my partner and I have nodes in our basement, like, and we, there's like, you know, we can unpack the onion of like, well, are we running on digital ocean? (laughs) Like how, like, where's our bandwidth coming from? Um, but the point is like, it's, pretty low cost for one node operator to run that server as opposed to like one giant company like cooling massive farms. Got it, got it. So so what what I'm hearing then just to kind of re-say it back to you and translate it is that so like Amazon has a huge server farm and they have the economic benefits because they own it. So it's cheaper for them and then they can sell it to us. And in a decentralized world, we it's basically the Amazon server farm in the sky that we get the economic benefit of and then that those cost savings can then be passed on to the users or the creators of of that yeah and it's like you know it's node software that 
you know, is the the mechanism that makes it possible for individuals to run, you know, smaller nodes of computational capacity as part of a global network, right? Like, and that's that's where I didn't do that, but the protocol developers of, of life here and other really cool projects have done that. And that's why I think this space is fucking cool. So, um, so what are the economics for LivePeer? Like, how does LivePeer make money then? Really good question. So there's like the LivePeer network, and then there's like LivePeer Inc., the, the company. Um, the like economic design of the protocol itself is it's a proof of stake protocol. So the LivePeer token is an incentive mechanism to get people to run these nodes on the network and you get inflationary live peer token um, for validating the network. And then on the, that's like on the supply side of the network. So you can think of like the live peer network as like a system of supply and demand for video transcoding. So the node operators supply um, video transcoding through their GPU processors that like they run their nodes with. And then the other kind of actor that's designed in the protocol is a broadcasting node who is the one that like needs the transcoding capacity. So broadcasters are people who like want to put video on the internet. Um, and then right now on the, on the network, you pay for transcoding in, in ETH. So node operators get both like live peer token as inflationary rewards for running nodes and they get um, ETH for doing the transcoding from broadcasters. In terms of it, like LivePeer, the company, like we are effectively a hosted broadcasting node um, on the LivePeer network because it actually is not trivial um, to set up your own broadcasting node and not everyone wants to do that. And so for, you know, developers who are looking to just put, you know, basic video features in an application, whether that's like live streaming or video on demand functionality, we have an API that makes it super easy to just plug that in to your application. And the people using the API are not just Web3 projects. And LiveFear has been around since 2017. Um, and the first customers were in, you know, Web2. And like in the early days before I joined LivePeer, like when they were like going to market with this, they'd like go out to Web2 companies and not tell them that it was crypto that was like powering this because they didn't need to know. Like all they need to know is like it's 10 times cheaper, it's still just as reliable than any other service. But like now, you know, that the you know, Web3 application ecosystem is starting to grow and like people are like the crypto space as a whole has moved from like, you know, ICO um, to like layer ones getting adoption. Like we're really excited right now to um, to support the development of, yeah, Web3 based video applications. And so, yeah, there's still a cost. Like we, you know, if you want to pay for live peer, uh, the use of the live peer API, um, there is, it's free up to a thousand minutes a month. And then there is a cost that kicks in, but it's still like a lot lower. And the point is like at scale, you know, your bill's going to be 10 X cheaper. So live peer makes, um, so there's the live peer network, Right. And mm -hmm. then there's live peer, like kind of like the, the API side. So the API yeah. side is how you're essentially making money. 
you're not making money off of the network though, correct? Yeah, that's right. We're like a SaaS, like the API is like a SaaS product. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, and then that's it. And then there's a whole world around like, what does it mean to be a Web3 API? Like there yeah. are, you know, a lot of protocols that are trying to figure out what's the right level of developer tooling. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so I, I love that because this is like a trend that we see whenever we talk to any sort of like Web3 based company, there's always like this sense of like, well, there's something wrong in the web two world because there's centralization so we're going to decentralize it but it seems like we're always re-centralizing things again so what's your like what's your comment on this thing of like well we've created our own network uh and we're also like a really big player in that network so isn't that just like re-centralization again but maybe at a slightly smaller scale than what is happening right now with amazon yeah, literally just asked our head of engineering how we're thinking about our API roadmap <laughs> yesterday. Um, and so I think it's like, what what are some of the like, you know, core principles of building in Web3? It's like, you know, not rugging developers. So the idea that in Web2 as a developer, you're in a walled garden situation where like, you know, you don't really own your code. And like, if you're running on, if your app is like relying on Google or like Amazon and they shut down, then your app's gone. Mm -hmm. So like, I think we all try and solve that product problem with that, you know, design principle in mind is how do we like not screw devs and give them as much, you know, flexibility and autonomy as possible. And then it comes down to choices and like what you like, Again, like live live peers bit is video transcoding. And in a web two world, like, you know, Amazon does the transcoding, it does the storage and hosting, it does the content delivery, and it does a lot of other stuff too. And so in web three, there's live peer, and then for storage, there's Arweave, there's storage, there's IPFS and Filecoin. Um, for social graphs, there's Lens, there's Orbis, there's Farcaster. Um, for, you know, decentralized identity, there's Spruce, there's Disco, there's, you know, so much. And so I, I think it's about, it's, it's, it's like a hard problem, like to, to figure out like what the level of abstraction is, is needed and that developers want. And I think like different, I think we're just seeing like as more front end developers come into web three, like they do want more. They don't want to make a lot of decisions, mm -hmm. but they, like, and they do trust, like they do trust, you know, yeah. they trust that we've made some good technical choices for them. So you had said something before of like, well, um, like rug pulling developers, Sean and I, uh, when we started out coding stuff, we don't really code much anymore, but, um, we had that experience actually with Facebook when there's something called parse oh. way back when, and then. And then they shut down Parse, and that was very sad. Um, so, in this situation with LivePeer, if LivePeer were to shut down, what happens? Does like are devs rug pulled again, or how how, how are they protected? How are devs protected? Um, if LivePeer were to shut down right now, like where our our broadcasting node is set up, such that like you wouldn't lose your, you wouldn't lose your stuff. And that's like, that's part of it, right. Is like those putting those fail safes in place. So 
yeah, like we can make centralized technical decisions around like, you know, the edges, but like, you know, the core part of like the data that's passing through the transcoding, um, that that's safe on the network. Yeah, you mentioned um, LensTube which, and Lens Protocol, which makes me excited because we've started posting on LensTube and it's like a really cool experience because it's basically a YouTube clone for Web3. And everything's pretty much the same, right? It's I, I upload a video, I add a title, add a description, add a thumbnail. The only difference in there is that you have a choice between, I think, IPFS and ceramic or Arweave or something, and you get to choose where the video is stored. Where does LivePeer sit in that process? Because I didn't even know LivePeer was part of Lens, LensTube until today. <laughs> ah, cool. Yeah, so Lens LensTube uses LivePeer today for video upload and playback. I think they will be using the live stream feature soon. And yeah, I like the developer of LensTube, like Sassy, he he would make the choice where he wants to have user have those videos stored. So, you know, and, and I think this is where it's also interesting. Like there may be some cases where like our wave is better than IPFS, like, um, but the, yeah, in that case of lens tube, like the developer would be choosing where they want to host. Got it. And and sorry if I miss didn't hear that correctly. But where where is LivePeer in that stack? Like where what are you guys providing in the lens tubes experience there? Oh, so we're doing the transcoding. Got it. So when I upload, it's going to you guys, and then going you to upload, IPFS or yeah, kind of how does that you work? Upload to lens. Yeah. So you upload to LensTube, and then that video goes through LivePeer because LensTube is using our API. Got it. And so, okay. yeah, for listeners who might not know, like, trans, like what's transcoding, like, why transcoding. So, um, if you like record a video on your on your phone, it's most likely not going to be in a format that can be received on any device anywhere in the world at any bandwidth. If you were going to try and put that on the internet, so you like need to transcode the video, which is like basically compressing it and like putting it in a format such that it can be received globally um, and you don't get like shitty buffering. You actually like have very good playback quality. Got it. And that takes a lot of compute, which is where you guys come in and you decentralize that yeah, compute. Yeah, I probably so should it's... have said that first. Like that's like the, like that's actually what the <laughs> problem we're solving is like actually being able to watch quality videos on the internet. Got it. Yeah. And, and, and transcoding is... is like 80% of bandwidth of the internet. Yeah. yeah. And, and we don't think about this, right? Because YouTube and they just yeah. take care of it, right? Like when I upload to YouTube, yeah. I don't know that this happens. It just happens. So yeah. I, I really want to make sure that I understand this. So I upload on LensTube and it hits you guys first or does it go to IPFS first? Also really good question. So about four months ago, we launched a new feature with decentralized storage playback, which was actually pretty cool because you can imagine a case. I actually don't know. I think Saucy's using this feature in LensTube right now. Um, but yeah, you can imagine a scenario where you want video stored first, playback second. I would, I, I'm pretty sure he's using this feature right now. So yeah. You would, you know, 
record your video, upload it to LensTube. What that means is that it actually first goes to a decentralized storage and then it gets transcoded and like basically cached um, on the live peer side and then it would be played back from live peer. I see. Okay, cool. So you're you're kind of sitting between the user and IPFS, the decentralized storage, yeah. and just magically yeah. in the background. Actually, it would it would actually be played back from the from the storage side, but we would do the transcoding. I'm not a developer like this is, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but there's like but the decentralized storage video playback means storage first. We cache and transcode. And then it gets played back from storage. Cool. I will say my experience on LensTube so far is really great. Like, there's not many issues with video playback, and it's honestly astonishing to me that it, it works that well. <laughs> cool. We love to hear it. Um, and we're we're really excited about the Lens ecosystem. Uh, Orb, which is an awesome, yeah. um, well, app they just fix videos. Is that because they use they you? Just launched, <laughs> yeah, they just launched Great. with live, like yesterday or two days ago. I yeah. noticed that. I was like, it's honestly infuriating because it's one of the only lens like apps that you can have on your phone. So I literally had it on my phone just to get notifications from the lens product like ecosystem, but it doesn't play videos. And so like, yeah, I was so excited when that works yesterday. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's exciting. And we're excited to see, to see a lot more because it's, you know, most of our experience online is through video. So that's kind of why we're, we're here. Yep. Talking about, um, talking about lens and lens tube and just the, all the stuff in general. Um, in the Web2 world, when you weren't paying for the product you were using, it was kind of like that saying of like, you are the product. And Facebook is making that money off of you. YouTube and Google is making that money off of you. Um, in this particular sense, like with Lens and uh, with LivePeer and IPFS and just everything, uh, who is paying for what? Uh, because some the stuff costs money. Uh, mm -hmm. but we're still consuming it. So when you watch a video on uh, LensTube, like where, <laughs> what's happening? Yeah, really interesting question. So like application developers have those costs of like putting all of these different like utilities into their stack. So like they have to pay for, a, you know, at scale, they have to pay for live peer. They have to pay for our weave or, um, you know, IPFS through Filecoin. And so the, I think the, the vision is that, you know, because end users are able to monetize on their side that, you know, developers are going to be able to take a cut of that in a fairer way. And also it goes back to what I said earlier, right? Like that cut is going to be at least 10 X smaller than the cut that mm -hmm. Twitch and YouTube are taking from creators today. But it does like, you know, we're all, we're all in this because we think the web three creator economy is going to create more opportunities for end users to monetize their data. And that, you know, is also going to help what covers the cost, but like, you're not going to have, monopolistic, you know, profit seeking, yep. like Google empires. It's like Sassy's running LensTube. 
So how do you think that's going to play out? If, if we had to do like a uh, five years ago, because I guess now it's like the transition time, right? But if we wanted to do like a then and or like in the future and now, um, where today I go on the YouTubes and I watch something and it doesn't cost me anything, but I'm giving away like my data, all the tracking, et cetera, of like what my patterns are. And I don't have any control over what I'm seeing, uh, but it's free to me to consume. So are you saying that in the future, um, that instead of it being free to users, it's more likely going to be more like a pay for play and it's just going to be a infinite amount mm -hmm. of subscriptions for me to like watch or like to, to consume media? And most of that's going to go directly to the creators, and then a small piece is going to go to the application developers. Yeah, I mean it's it's an it's a hurdle that exists today. Like the idea that I got to do everything for free because I didn't own my data. Because I can own my data, does that mean I have to pay for everything up front? Yeah, <laughs> no, <it> like. <laughs> I think those of us who are like building products in this space, we like also don't want like, you know, that to become a barrier. And the reality is I think like there are some things that you may want to sell your data for if it means you'll get to do stuff for free. But I think like the, the fundamental difference between like the old world and the new one is you choose, like you're given the so option. Choice. Gotcha. Yeah. It's consent. Consent is like the name of the game. I was going to say, because as um, if it's going to be like cable back then and the 20 different subscriptions I have today, it's going to be so much more expensive <laughs> and I'm going to forget about what I'm subscribed to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's like all, you know, there's already a lot of cool business models around that, right? Like if you, you know, they're like data streamer and like data union or like data DAO, I can't remember what it's called, data union. But yeah, you can imagine like a service where like they will like in a, in a like trustless way kind of hold your data for you, but like abstracted it in a way that they will like help you figure out where are opportunities that you can, if you want to sell your data, they will like sell your data for you. Um, like that's kind of interesting. I don't know. There might be situations where like, yeah, I know like for this particular use case that there's literally been a data DAO set up to like curate like data use case scenarios. Like maybe, yeah, I want to give that DAO access to like my metadata, you know? Interesting. Yeah. One thing that I saw yesterday on, um, I think it was on one of the lens apps that was kind of like a, an eye opening moment of like, Oh, like, it is kind of to your question too, Thomas, is there's so many more opportunities for like economics to occur here for creators that like we don't, we're still building it. We're still trying to figure out how people are going to make money and who's paying for what. And there was this product or protocol called Waves that came out. I don't know if you saw this yeah. where I can post. So like I could take this podcast, post it on Lens and use this thing called Waves and I can allocate a certain dollar amount and say, I'm going to put $100 to, for this post. And so when I post it, this whole thing that says, um, I'm offering $100 for anyone who mirrors this post, which is like a retweet in the Web3 world. And you get paid $2 for mirroring it. 
mm-hmm. until the $100 is gone. So it's an incentive for people to interact with my content and they mm-hmm. get paid for it with actual money, which is so cool. And you can set like, you must have a certain number of followers in order to mirror it. So you can set like limits so only influencers can do it and pay them a lot more or something. So I saw that and I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, that is super cool. That's what's exciting about like the new frontier. Like we are literally figuring out the new games that are possible given the primitives we have. And like, that's, you know, again, live, live peers, like backend infrastructure layer, but like we have made a choice, like not to go pitch to web two companies. Cause we think that literally the future of online applications will be built in web three on these primitives. Yep. So are you like, what percentage of your, your customers are web two versus web three businesses? Um, I mean, we've been around since 2017, like, again, you know, before Web3 applications existed, which was probably like, I don't know, a year and a half ago, (laughs) two years, (laughs) like it was just Web2. And now like, we're definitely seeing a growing number of apps using LivePeer, like you mentioned LensTube, like Orb, Um, you know, the, like, there's some cool Web2 projects that have used LivePeer and that do. Uh, the Lot Radio, which is like a um, public broadcaster for DJs in Brooklyn, they use Live Peer. Like we actually did a really cool um, demo for her, which is a Berlin-based um, DJ studio. Um, so those are like the in the Web two space. Yeah, we've had some interesting like creator communities use us, but like there, I think we're seeing a growing number of social applications in the Web three space use Live Peer. Got it. And we, we've kind of danced around kind of what you're doing specifically at LivePeer. Can you kind of, I've never heard of ecosystem growth as a position. And that's kind of the fun part for Thomas and I is we interviewed someone who is head of Web3, you know, and yeah. all these titles that have never existed before. Can you kind of talk about what head of ecosystem growth, what, what that means and what you, you spend your time doing? Yeah. Also just talked to my boss this morning about what am I doing? Um, <laughs> uh, Sean and I have the same conversation every day. So like, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out together here. <laughs> yeah. No, my boss is a CEO and he's great. He's the best boss I've ever had. Um, and what does head of ecosystem growth mean? I, my first title at LivePeer was head of community and governance because I had actually prior to joining LivePeer been working on my own project with a co-founder called Devolution DAO, which was um, we were trying to build a Discord for DAOs um, with an underlying, like fundamentally composable, extensible, modular smart contract architecture. And at the time when we were building this, a lot of the DAO protocols and tooling were very hard to customize for communities. And so why am I telling you this? I don't know. It's kind of relevant to my journey of life here. Um, so I was like really interested in governance stuff. So started as head of community and governance and like really working on life here's decentralization roadmap. And like, again, one of the reasons why I love like working at life here and, and the founders, um, like we really do care about being a project that exists independent of Inc. Like you ask, like, you know, 
do we care about like devs getting rug pulled a hundred percent and like getting a, like a practical decentralization roadmap, um, is, is part of that. And then, yeah, so I was doing that and then I just started doing like business development and just being out in the web three space. And like, I love, I mean, I'm a hyper connector. Like I, I love connecting the dots and like ecosystem, the role of ecosystem is really about being the connective tissue between the points of intersection in any system. And so it's a hard, it's a hard thing to like create like KPIs around, although, you know, partnerships, like, you know, BD, like new leads coming in, like all of those things matter. Like community is also part of it. Like, and I like to think about my role as like chief decentralized growth officer, where like we want to grow adoption of live peer and we want to grow demand on the network. And for our node operators, our, our orchestrator community, so node operators on the live peer network are called orchestrators. They also really want demand on the network. They're like, when fees for us? <laughs> um, and that like, you know, I'm an advocate for our community in that sense. Like, it, you know, who are this understanding the stakeholders in the live peer network and like, again, being the connective tissue for those, being able to like sense and seize the opportunities and like where like I need my colleagues is like helping me to prioritize like from a business perspective, like what are the most important, what are the most important connective tissues, you know, in a potentially infinite, you know, space of connective tissue. And I like have so much respect, um, and appreciation for my colleagues who tolerate me saying we should, you know, everything is possible. <laughs> and they're like, no, yes, everything is possible, but like, we don't have infinite resources. Uh, yeah. Until the, the one day that we do have infinite resources, that'll be great. Yeah. Cause then we could build anything and everything always. Yeah. I'm not like the one thing I will say I do not do cause I'm not like great at it is, is operations. And I think that, yeah, ecosystem growth, like, I, I think those roles need a really good, like disciplined operator who is able to help, like, you know, bring it back home. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like what, um, again, what for this project is most important, um, given the infinite possibility. So when you talk about growth, um, over time uh, as, so, um, as, as web three gets bigger, um, Web3 was already on financial regulators and just our beautiful government uh, regulators in general uh, radar 10, 10 years ago. And we don't really get the opportunity to talk to many former regulators that then become like crypto lovers so, or like Web3 lovers. Like, so, thank, so thank you for, yeah. for being many, in the Many of the people currently in this space were like, in diapers probably when I was like, <laughs> yeah, when you were trying to, yeah, like squash them. Um, but, uh, so what do you think, what do you think is going to happen? Like in the regulation space, because the financial regulators usually come in first because it's obviously money. Um, but 
I imagine there's going to be more regulation coming down the line as this becomes more prevalent because we already see that in today's world with like Web2, whether that can be like GDPR, ADA, like all these different kind of things uh, that pop up. So what do you think is going to happen in the future for regulation and Web3 in a non-financial sense? We don't really care about like DeFi for for this kind of topic because that's too loaded of a question. Um, well, I think DeFi is all regulators understand about Web3. So it will be the lightning. It is the lightning rod for regulation of the space. And like we're already seeing, I think the rulings around, you know, staking are very concerning because again, like decentralized compute networks are only possible because of proof of stake protocols. And they only work because you have a delegator community that's, you know, able to, I think, provide some check and balance and centralization of stake um, or check against centralization of stake. So we actually, like, along with other Web3 infrastructure projects, like, are, you know, trying to figure out how we can lend our voice to this space. And I think, like, we, as a former regulator and like having been involved in global policy conversations, I think it's a very bad position to be on the defensive all the time. And that's kind of what I see Web3 not kind of getting out of is the defensive posture. And we need to, as a space, move towards being more proactive in show explaining and showing how what we're doing is good for the world. Like literally, what is the public good? Mm -hmm. in web three like that's until we start to tell that story like more often and louder i i don't i'm actually really worried so um do you do you do you think that because um regulators will eventually just try to like kind of choke it before it becomes like something big uh, but then there's also the counter argument from their side of being like, well, if it gets too big, we're not going to be able to regulate anything in the first place. And then there's the counter counter argument to being like, well, what is regulation and this like ethos that doesn't really have clearly defined borders anymore because identities are so uh, asked. Mm-hmm. I don't know what my question was there, but yeah, I'm kind of. <laughs> <laughs> You know, what are the, are, you know, I'm just thinking about the latest decision from the SEC, right? Like with, with Kraken, like my first, my first reaction to that was like trying to be hopeful in that, well, maybe they think Kraken is a centralization risk and they're actually okay with investors delegating to smaller independent node operators that like aren't centralization risks. I think that might be a generous interpretation of the intention of that ruling, but I hope, um, and that's where we have to poke is like, okay, is there something you understand about what we're trying to do with this project that you think has some value to the public? Like, what is that thing? And let's focus on that and let's work together on that. Because if I'm understanding this correctly, the fear is that this, new SEC regulation that kind of says that we don't like staking, that that kind of puts everything at risk that is built yeah. on Ethereum and a network like yours, 
where staking is like the main piece of the network. That's what secures the network. That's what, you know, stakers get paid from this. Um, so I imagine that's what the fear is. Yeah, that, that, is, that is absolutely the fear. It's that it's, it's a lack of understanding, right? Like that's when you lobby, like when, like doing the work of like government relations, you just want to make sure you're on the same page. And I don't think we're on the same page. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. We'll, we'll have to, um, we have some people that we could introduce you to because we're part of this thing, um, Thomas, you can talk about it more called the ACT App Association. Yep. The, I think that's the acronym. The, I, I hate how there's two names for it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand that either. But yeah, maybe you can talk about it a little bit. So the App Association, basically, uh, historically, they've worked with Web2 type companies. So a lot of their larger sponsors are like Apple and Facebook and so forth. But really what they do is represent app developers. Uh, and then they advocate through this like trade association um, to uh, to legislators to kind of give the use cases of like why what we're doing in the web two space is so important, mm -hmm. but it's really cool to see that slowly shifting into the web three space. Um, and that's like one of the things that gets Sean and I excited too, is finding the use cases because until they can identify until legislators, um, because I have to identify like who the party right here is, but if until legislators can I, like really understand a story that relates to like why, for example, um, why internet access is so important and what jobs it creates and what economic benefits it creates and so forth to everybody yeah. until they can really kind of pinpoint that that's what helps kind of drive legislature. And so I think the more use cases we can give, the more, that'll actually help us uh, down the road, especially from the Web3 standpoint. Yeah, sign me up. I mean, I'm all about trying to connect with those projects and like, I yeah, I think that the more we can show what's good and the good intention, you know? Yep, totally agree. So it'll be interesting to follow all the regulation. Is there, what is, what's the difference between, like, how's Canada handling this versus the U.S.? Like, I, I guess I'm not up on the Can Canadian yeah, Web3 laws. Like, <laughs> Canada just waits for the U.S. to handle stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... I feel like Canada well, likes I, more rules than the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Canada, when it comes to crypto, like... The banks are kind of the starting point for finance. Like, so first of all, like crypto is still within the financial sector regulatory bucket, which is, I think, part of the problem, right? Like we're actually talking about industry policy. We're not talking about the financial sector. Like that's where I'd like to see the conversation move is from like DeFi scammy financial sector regulation to like, no, this is like literally transforming the digital economy so that it's fairer and better for more people. Um, I, maybe I should talk more about that this year actually <laughs> is like the, we're literally like global inequality is probably like the biggest problem we face, like as a human species today. And like what's driving that it's internet companies who are like responsible for most of the wealth and like don't share it and literally by like decentralizing ownership 
of internet companies and internet services. Like, I think that's what has the, I, I really believe that like we can get to a more equal global economy um, through a decentralized web. I don't know who's saying that to regulators, um, but and someone by equal, I think <laughs> it's also like opportunity too. I think just like yeah. more equal opportunity because you can argue today that there is a lot of opportunity, but there's not a lot to participate at the same level of what the big tech companies operate at because they create too much of a competitive advantage. Yeah, totally. Like when did monopolies become like sanctioned by regulators? You know, a lot of this is around like, again, competition policy, which is why I think this needs to be like an industry and like commerce, you know, department issue rather than, you know, as, um, a treasury or like financial sector issue. For someone that may be listening that hears you say that Web3 is has the potential to help solve global inequality, can you kind of walk us through how that, like, what does that look like? Like maybe fast forward 5, 10, 15, however many years that this might take. Like how is that actually going to happen? Um, I'm asking you to solve the world's biggest yeah. problem right now. The silver bullet. <laughs> we need to solve my my vision for a better world through Web three, um, it starts with addressing the concentration of capital, and the concentration of wealth, and the problem of economic inequality, and two ways you can tackle that. One is you redistribute the pie, and we can talk about how crypto can do that. And the other one is that you grow the pie. And we can also talk about how crypto can do that. And I think like, you know, crypto web three has the potential to do both of those things. One is on the, I mean, we're at time, like this is like a whole other conversation. Oh, man. Yeah, I didn't realize we we're at the hour here. <laughs> Honest to God, I would like, let's have that conversation because I like, okay. there is, and I actually was an impact investing, like, for a while. And part of, you know, what we do at the World Economic Forum is literally like, how do you take private capital for public good? So, you know, there is at this point, I think it's like literally like $200 trillion, like financial gap to achieve the UN sustainable development goals. Like who's mm. going to pay, who's going to pay to achieve the goals that we've set as a world would make us all better off. And they're like 17. Um, you know, private capital is looking for ways to affect those, to have an impact on those goals. ESG has been like a total disaster. Like ESG is nothing, but there's still like people with private wealth that like want to have social impact. And I think, again, blockchain and DAOs in particular can do a lot to help redistribute and reallocate capital in like accountable ways like this is what like you know blockchain and you know crypto communities do through through like DAOs is provide an accountability and transparency mechanism for how things get spent and like around the decision making for that and then there's like on the like growing the pie I think like that's where creator economy stuff is like super relevant and there's more to say on that but like you know again the foundational principle of like people being able to own and, and monetize their presence online, which is just such a huge part of their lives. Like we're just at the start of that. 
Love it. Well, we will absolutely have you on the show again to talk about this because, yeah, this is it's an interesting topic that isn't being talked about enough. So, um, Shannon, thanks so much for being on the show. This was a lot of fun. Oh, thank you guys so much. 